Check, check. Check, check. Hello. My guest this episode began our conversation with an apology. Um, man, it took me so long to get here from Soho. It's unbelievable. I'm really, really sorry about the tardiness. Listen, I, it's New York. I'm, I'm upset. <laughs> that is the voice of comedian Mo Amer. When we spoke, he was going from our chat to an international flight. He was schlepping around with a bunch of bags. It was all quite stressful. And Mo was worried that because he was late, we might, like, cancel the interview. I could be catastrophizing. It's all in my head. I and think you're fine. catastrophizing. I also love that right. you're using a word that my therapist loves to use about me. He's like, Sam, you're catastrophizing. <laughs> Not many people know that. that word. It's one of my favorite it's words. It's a real actually. word. It's the best word. Yes. It's one of my fa- I think it's probably top five words of all time for me. <laughs> well, what's the last thing you actually catastrophized about? Right now, today. From NPR, I'm Sam Sanders. It's been a minute. This episode, Mo Amer, comedian and writer. Mo calls himself a global stand-up comedian. He grew up in Texas, but he got there after fleeing Kuwait as a refugee when he was young. In his comedy career, Mo has performed hundreds of shows with Dave Chappelle. He's got a Netflix special, and he is a member of what's known as the longest-running artistic collective of Muslim comic performers in the world. That group is called Allah Made Me Funny. In this chat, we talk about all of those things, and we also discuss why Mo says his mother is a real OG. All right, as you already heard, Mo was in New York fighting traffic. I was in L.A., I guess doing the same thing. I love that as I've been preparing for this interview with you, whenever I type in your name, it wants to autocorrect Amr to America. Exactly. Kind of symbolic. Well, or kind of ironic, I guess, no? But I would say symbolic and ironic. I mean, a little bit of both. Yeah, yeah. And for those who uh, don't know your work, it's ironic, I say, because, like, you spent, what, how many years as a traveling comic, as a refugee? So I 20 years to get my citizenship, and 10 of those 20 years I spent traveling the world without a passport. Wow. You had a, what, refugee travel document. What even is that? No, even immigration officers don't know, which they should know. <laughs> they should know. But they don't. They, the people that should know don't know what it is. It's even a Geneva they, passport, right? It's a Geneva passport, correct. Uh, Tell folks what that means. Yeah, so for refugees and asylees that are fleeing um, persecution in their country or because of war or whatever reasons that they have to flee under the definition of asylee or refugee, when you come to that country, you can't you forfeit your passport essentially. And if in my case, since I'm Palestinian, I was I'm stateless, so I didn't even have a country. Right. Hmm. So then it's so then it became even trickier. Yeah, it became a trickier situation. So the refugee travel document um, is a is a little book that wants to be a passport really badly, but it's not. (laughs) But it's only good for a year. But it allows refugees uh, or asylees to travel while they are waiting for their uh, paperwork to go through to become citizens. Yes. But the thing that would happen to you is that you would get to all these TSA checks at all these airports and they'd be like, 
what is that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. TSA didn't care. TSA was okay. like, whatever, hologram, yeah, we're Customs good. was you the know? ones. Yeah, cu- customs, and um, it was mostly uh, the people working for the airlines. Really? So when you come in to check in, yeah, because they don't think you can go on this. They're like, oh, you're trying to pull a fast one here. Because the airlines itself, if they allow somebody that's not supposed to go to that country, they, they can get, get fined. Yeah. yeah, they get fined like 30 grand, something like pretty hefty. Huh. So that So they're really skittish about it. And what they don't know, they're afraid of. And they look at it, and then it says it's not a passport inside of it. So they're like, it's not a passport. I'm like, yeah, I know it's not a passport, but it's like it's like a passport. I was like, how can it be like a passport? Because it says it's not a passport. Yeah, I know. <laughs> See, that during the Geneva Convention. You got to explain, created, like, world yeah. history to these people. Just Yeah, I'm like, read page 11 on here. It describes everything for you. There's a hologram. It's real. There's visas that are issued from those countries. No, sir, you can't travel. Yes, I can. You're wrong. How can I be wrong? I work for the airline. I'm never wrong. Wrong, or that kind of thing. Now their ego comes into play. How could this refugee know more than me? Walkie-talkie comes out. They're Walkie. getting back up. Yeah, a little red phone. It's usually a red phone. Uh, it really is. Not to be. I'm, I'm not being cliche. I'm like really, for real, the, red phone. The, for real. There's a red phone, and then there's a guy with a red jacket that comes out, and he starts reading the thing. He looks perplexed, and his boss comes, and then the head of security comes. They, it's a whole situation. <laughs> I'm always arguing. I'm always repeating the same thing. I watched your special on Netflix, and you're able to laugh at a lot of this, a lot of the hardships you've dealt with at airports for many, many years. I could totally see myself, if I were in that situation, not being able to laugh at it at all. I would just be mad. How do you channel uh, years of your life and travel that seem to be very frustrating into humor? Not everyone could do that, I'm thinking. I think stand-up comedy, the best, some of the best stand-up comedy comes from frustration and anger. Okay. You know, just seeing a guy just just like crescendo into a mountain of frustration and he just dissects, he or she just dissects a situation and they just like vent and everybody relates to it. That's what crushes the most. Um, and that, and that's what really got me through it, you know? And that's what really helped me get through this immigration situation, this stand-up comedy. You know, it's just like you feel gross. It's mm. all these, like, projections at you, coming at you. What are you doing here? Why are you here? You're not supposed to be here. And you're like, no, 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 I'm supposed to be here. You're the one that doesn't know it. And it's just, like, something that builds and builds and builds. Therefore, it needs an outlet. You can't just hold all that inside. We also got to catch folks up. You know, we, we we've just talked about you being a refugee for many years, but tell folks where you came to the U.S. from and what made you and your family refugees. Um, I was born in Kuwait, mm-hmm. uh, left Kuwait after the first Gulf War. Mm-hmm. So in 1990, that's what uh, made it. So I'm born to Palestinian parents Okay. Uh, in Kuwait, mm-hmm. and we ended up fleeing the Gulf War in 1990. Now, this is the thing that made things more confusing because on my travel document, it would say I'm born in Kuwait. Mm-hmm. So they'd be like, oh, you're Kuwaiti. But you're like, like no, no, I'm like no, 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 I'm not Kuwaiti. Um, they're like, where's your Kuwaiti passport? Like, see, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> see, in Kuwait, doesn't matter if you're born there. It matters where your parents have come from. They're like, okay, where your parents come from? My parents are Palestinian. I was like, all right, give me your Palestinian passport. I was like, man, I don't have a Palestinian passport. He's like, why do you not have a Palestinian passport? I was like, because Palestine's not a state. He's like, why don't you make it a state? I'm like, have you not watched the news <laughs> the last seventy odd years? Uh-huh, I mean. Uh-huh. My goodness, you know, that, that happened to me in Germany of all really? places. Yeah, yeah, So then you come. So, so I ended I, up in Houston, Texas. Which yeah, is, so am- I, you know, I'm from Texas. Where are you from? San Antonio. 
oh, the, yeah. the superior Amer- Texan city. Well, let's take it easy. Take it <sighs> easy there. You Houston's know. too much. Houston's it's, just too much. No, no. It's the New York of Texas. It's just too many right. people in one place. I'll take that. I like that. And it's that. too humid, and you're just driving all the time. Like, San Antonio's you, not humid? Is that what you're telling me? It's not me? as humid as Houston. Oh, come on. Traffic's not as bad. I mean, just be- it's going to get worse. Don't worry. Oh, well, thanks for that. It's going to grow. It's going to grow. <laughs> Did you like Houston? Oh, I love Houston. Yeah. Houston will be my home forever. What about it do you like? Um, the diversity. You know, yeah. when I first moved there to Houston, uh, you know, that's the that's the city that that raised me. That's the city that loved me. That's where I came out from. And it's like, that's that's just home. It's just something about the South that I find very endearing and something that it's just like I can relate to as an Arab as well. Arabs are very hospitable. They love cookouts. They love to eat. You know, and and the South is like that. Houston is very much like that. And that's where my family's at, and that's all my friends that I grew up with that were still very, very close to this day that I met when I first came to the States. So I'm very, very blessed to have that. And Houston is full of immigrants. Like, it is as diverse as New York, if not more diverse. It's supposed to be the most diverse city in America, apparently. So then you walk in there as a Palestinian refugee. I'm sure they were like... What are you? Yeah, they didn't know what Arabs were. Yeah, what exactly. did they make you? It was very confusing to the gangs in Houston, <laughs> that's for sure. There was Mexican gangs that wanted to recruit me because they thought I was Mexican. And there was black gangs that wanted to beat me up because they thought I was Mexican. Sounds fun. How did you deal it, with that? You learned Spanish, right? I learned Spanish. I'm, flu- <laughs> I'm fluent now, but when I was when I was in ninth grade, it was a really rough one. I was walking to school, and I see Latino gangs hanging out. And this guy's like, uh, obviously seen me before, and he was just like looking at me, and he shut shaking his head and he was like say vato you walk by here every day you don't talk to your this is your family bro this is your familia bro you don't like your familia bro he's like what's your name I was like my name is Muhammad he was like what (laughs) he's like you look exactly like Hector how is that possible and Hector came out and I was like oh my god I do look like Hector (laughs) and the black gangs wanted to beat me up the same day I'm walking back to, uh, home from school and I uh-huh. see the black gangs hanging out and this guy, this guy yells at me he goes Jose you on the wrong block Jose I'm looking around I don't see anybody else I'm like who the hell is Jose I said my name is Muhammad he goes ah man salam alaikum brother my bad <laughs> it was the best so you've been code switching for a little bit I guess you had to do that growing up it, it's I, I'm always interested in Hearing people of color share their perspectives on race when they've had that experience. Because for me, growing up as a black guy in South Texas, my experience regarding race was pretty linear. Like, Mm. I'm black. That's it. You see it and you know. Right. And like you have probably had lots of periods in your life where people see you and don't know. And you can be many different things. That's 100 percent true. It's very interesting to grow up that way because even like even coming up in high school and things like that and, and because I don't have an accent apparently you know if you're an immigrant you have to have mm-hmm. an accent right mm-hmm. and so if you don't have an accent they find it really odd that you're not an American you're not American no I am American but not yet but I am <laughs> I promise but I am but I but I'm not but I yeah. am yeah yeah so it was just like this thing that's there was like this battle that went on inside of you on a regular basis when somebody would find out like you you don't you know you don't have a social security card like oh oh I thought you were American mm-hmm. mo I was you like, sound no, American yeah, yeah exactly you sound American they they would be really shocked by it and in the winter I get lighter and in the summer <laughs> I get darker so they don't know 
Like over the winter, they think I'm. Are you white? Mex- uh-huh. I don't know what you mix with Mexican white. What happened? And then like, are you Spanish? And then all of a sudden, the summer comes. Like, oh, you're you're a different kind of Mexican. I think you know. <laughs> it was just like there wasn't many Mohammeds running around at that time. Yeah, there which, really wasn't. Which is crazy because you point out in your special that Muhammad is the most popular name in the world. Correct. And like Muslims and Arabs are like everywhere. Yes. And That's one of my favorite jokes, actually. Muhammad's most popular name in the world, but I can't find one keychain with my name on. <laughs> <laughs> Time for a break. Talking with comedian and writer Mo Amer. Just ahead, Mo's thoughts on the comedy world and the Me Too movement. BRB. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Zoom. When you can't be there in person, Zoom. Zoom is used by millions to connect face-to-face, across town or around the world. Share files, video, anything, and connect through any device, desktop, laptop, tablet, smartphone, or conference room system. Zoom video conferencing, Zoom rooms, Zoom video webinars, and Zoom phone lets you do business at the speed of Zoom. Visit Zoom online to set up your free account today. Meet happy with Zoom. Whether it's athlete protests, the Muslim travel ban, gun violence, school reform, or just the music that's giving you life right now, race is the subtext to so much of the American story. And on Code Switch, we make that subtext text. You can listen to us on NPR One or wherever you get your podcasts. When did you figure out you wanted to do comedy? Uh, I figured out I was going to be a comedian when I was 10 years old. That's early. Yeah, I uh, knew immediately. I was at the Houston Livestock Show and Rodeo. and uh, I don't think a lot of people go to the Houston Livestock Show and Rodeo and determine that they want to be a comedian. Yeah, I know. I was there and I saw those bull riders. I was like, I need to be a stand-up. No, no, they have those, you know, enormous concerts every night. I mean, it's probably the biggest stretch. Yeah. Of concerts in the world, probably. Yeah, it's yeah. pretty incredible. So my brother, since I was in the States probably a few months at that point, mm-hmm. you know, my parents weren't there. Everything changed. Life sucks. You know, I'm pissed. And my brother takes me to kind of like change a pace. Mm-hmm. And it was a co-headlined event with mm-hmm. the band Alabama. Okay. And Bill Cosby. That is quite a pairing. Yeah, quite a pairing. And so I saw it now, of course, you know, I don't want to get in all the details about Cosby and how he. Yeah, things changed for him. We now know more about him. But when you saw him, he wasn't. Yeah, it was 1990. Okay. Yeah, it was 1990. So he inspired you? Yeah. I mean, I saw him just he has a lot of comedians. I saw him when I was 10. I saw him on this rotating stage with a lapel mic in front of like 67,000 people at the Astrodome. And he was absolutely smashing. Yeah. And I was I was dying laughing. I can't tell you anything he said or, you know, the jokes that he said. But I just tell you this. I was just I knew that that was what I was supposed to be doing for a living. I looked at my brother. I said, I'm gonna be a comedian. How do you reconcile? Knowing that Bill Cosby inspired you to choose comedy as a career, but then knowing now what we know about what kind of man he is. It's devastating, you know, to see one of your, uh, at that time, heroes in stand-up. It's absolutely devastating. It, it hurts very, very much to know that that's what he was doing. So, like, really, really burns. Uh, but at the same time, it's like, uh, there's no but. It's just, you know... 
you know, I, you get new heroes. Who are your new <laughs> you heroes? You know what I mean? Yeah, it's like he's the one who inspired me to do stand-up, and he's inspired a lot of people. I mean, my God, you know, Chappelle is a dear friend of mine, yeah. and I toured with him for years. He, he does the intro to... for your special? Is that his voice? He does. Yeah, that is his voice. Actually, he came out and surprised the audience, too, and uh, it's, not in the, it's not in the release footage, but mm-hmm. yeah. It was great. But yeah, he did. It was really amazing. So he was there and all that, but he started stand-up. He decided he was going to be a comedian when he was 10 when he saw Cosby's picture in the paper. Mm. And we all, you know, we a lot of people started stand-up because of Bill Cosby. I mean, the guy is an incredible, one of the greatest orators of our time. I mean, he is, as far as stand-up is concerned. And to have, uh, it's just gross. I mean, he's in jail right now. Did anybody see that coming? No. I remember watching the Cosby show as a kid being like, I want to be in that family. I want him yeah. to be my dad. Yeah, everybody uh, wants And I had a dad, a great dad. Yeah, <laughs> but great like, father. It is, it is, it is, it is, we're still in this moment where we're having to grapple with a lot of celebrities that we used to revere. How do you think the world of comedy grapples with this season in which a lot of the big names are just falling? Like, Louis C.K., gone. Bill Cosby, gone. There will well, be Louis more. Well, Louis C.K., I don't think Louis C.K. and Cosby in the same breath is fair. I don't think that's a fair fair thing. And also, but they're he's on the not same gone. spectrum, though. I mean, yeah, yeah. it's true. He he is still performing. He's touring. He's yeah. touring right now. He's people are coming out and watching. Uh, I think that's. I think this is this is what's so scary about something, is, is that, lumping in rapists with somebody who had like a weird sexual fetish. That's this. That's what Louis C. K. That's what Louis C. K. Is. But I do think the reason though people are lumping these names together is because they're all along this spectrum of abuse of women, right? And like abuse of power with women. And so, yeah, of course, what Cosby does is not what Louis C. K. did, but they are both types of predatory behavior man. against it's scary. women. Yes, yeah, it sucks. It's gross. It's all gross, man. Do you this th- whole topic How is many more dudes are left to be outed for this stuff in the world of comedy? Because I feel like it's not over yet, right? I think in the world. I don't think it just has to be just comedy. I think it's just in the world in general. Like, oh, my God, let's just dig into the people that's supposed to be leading this country. Let's talk about all yeah. the senators and all the weird quirks that they might have. Oh, my God. Do like, you think talk the- about it. Is everybody perfect here? I mean, what they you think what they did to Aziz was good? He got yelped, as, as Chappelle would put it. He got yelped. You know, he got reviewed from a date. What did he do? Do you think that writ large the Me Too movement is making the world of comedy better or worse? Man, this is a long topic, Sam. <laughs> you can't just surmise it like that. You put me in a trap here. I'm gonna Sam. let you answer for as long as you, you want. You trapping me here, Sam. No, no, no. I, mean, I think I'm curious I think, though. I I am curious because like I'm looking at the world of comedy from the outside. You're in it. I think the Me Too movement in general, you know, needs some adjustment for sure. I mean, there's a lot of, I think, riffraff in the movement that is just not, that's like the real victims are getting, um, are getting overshadowed here, I believe. You know, don't you think so, Sam? Listen, I. Oh, no, don't try to, no, don't no. you throw I'm that gonna you. in. I'm going to tell you, yeah. I think that for years, uh-huh. men had no idea the extent to which women all the time like had to be on guard against sketchy dudes. And I think what like the reality that's hitting me now is knowing and hearing women talk about how like it's a constant threat for them in a way that I had just not seen. So I think to the extent that men can know that, that is good. Um So you're saying Islam is right and women should be wearing burqas? I'm just kidding. <laughs> oh, <Lord. laughs> but, Too dark of a joke? Too dark? 
I, oh, can't I, joke anymore. I love a good dark joke. <laughs> it's not even no, you're not even. <laughs> Bookers are not even like <laughs> mandatory in Islam. I'm just kidding. I do think that like with any movement that starts out with a bang, like there are you know, not everything about it goes right. Right. But I think that if we end this wave of Me Too and acknowledge that like women have to put up with a bunch of crap and it's not right, then pound for pound writ large, okay. I'd say if good. You can't, if if men forever, I'm raised, you know, my I lost my father when I was 14. I was raised mostly by my mother and I have like unbelievable aunts that I believe are like saints, you know? This is the foundation that my life stands on. And if you don't appreciate and take care of women and you don't you don't do that, you're just you're just a you're just somebody who wasn't raised properly and doesn't understand it. I have to now say this. Of course, the abuse of women is terrible. Of course, the mistreatment of women is terrible. Of course, for many, many years, I've seen it. You know, come on, machismo, old school men, you know, Mm -hmm. you know, I've seen that. But when you have somebody, then what what becomes the situation is that where it really frustrates me, it becomes like there's real victims out there and there's just people that want attention, right? And so why are media outlets so starved for this attention to give somebody attention where they just had a bad date? You know, that's a problem to me. And then you start lumping in somebody who is these who just had a bad date and we're both enjoying each other's company. As far even when I read the article itself, being lumped in with somebody like Cosby, being lumped in with somebody who like put him to sleep and raped him for God's sakes, and put somebody who's like Harvey Weinstein, who's using his power and really, really forcing these women to do things that that they did not want to do. It's like that's that's where I draw the line. When we come back, Mo tells me about his mother's reactions to his performances. BRB. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Berkshire Hathaway Home Services. With a franchise network of highly trained agents and advanced marketing tools, Berkshire Hathaway Home Services network members aim to provide something more than just real estate. They think beyond the next transaction and build relationships based on your long-term goals to ensure you'll get all the value that home brings, year after year, home after home. All that more they do, that's home services. Start your home search at BerkshireHathawayHS.com. Before you can start your day, you like to know what's happening in the news. That's what Up First is for. It's the morning news podcast from NPR, the news you need to take on the day in just about 10 minutes. Listen to Up First on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcasts. I want to talk more about what I assume is a favorite woman in your life, your mother, who you call a gangster in your special Tell the story quickly um, of y'all's voyage to America and how that prompted you to call her a gangster. It was a a beautiful story. (laughs) Yeah, she is an absolute gangster. So when we were leaving Kuwait, you know, we had to get out of there. We had to leave on a school bus. So my mom had to get myself and my sister out, and we had to take whatever little money that we had. So the the idea was that we're going to go from Kuwait on a school bus through Baghdad, through Iraq, to Jordan. Jordan, my sister and I would catch a flight to Houston. So we had a little bit of money. 
uh, and we found out that they were searching anything, uh, everybody's bags in Baghdad, and if they find anything valuable, they're going to take it from you. Hmm. So I see my mom. She grabs a razor. I remember she opens up her purse, this black purse, mm-hmm. and she cuts a perfect line behind each zipper on the inside of the purse. Hmm. And she puts equal amounts of money on each side, and she starts to sew it back up. I'm like, oh, so my she's God. sewing money into the sides of the purse, into so no the, one will see. The, it. She's basically insulating it. That's amazing. With money, and I was like, oh my God, my mother is a gangster. Did you know that your mother even knew how to do that kind of stuff? Oh, she was really great at sewing, but I didn't know she was a smuggler. Like, I didn't know this was going to happen. Yeah. And then she made two custom money belts for uh, herself <laughs> and my sister because because they didn't search women or it's going to be highly unlikely uh, that they search them. Yeah. So then we get on the bus, we start going, and then my mom forgets about this uh, this little bit of money that was left. She totally forgot about it, so she just throws it in the lining of the suitcase, the bigger suitcase. Mm-hmm. So we get to Baghdad. We look out the window, and they're just, like, breaking suitcases. They're slicing them open. And my mom's like, oh, my God, they're going to find this money that's in the suitcase. Then we look over my sister. My sister has zero gangster skills. (laughs) This poor little young lady's, like, sweating profusely. Like, we just knew that she was going to sell us all out. So my mom (laughs) tells her, get the hell away from me. (laughs) Grab your brother. Get the hell away from me. Get off the bus. You little wow. kids go outside. Wow. They won't suspect anything. And then as we're walking out, I see my mom messing up the clothes in the suitcase, and then she throws some orange peels and some trash that we had from the from the ride over. Wow. And some time goes by. I don't know how much time went by. We all start walking on the bus, back on the bus. This soldier sees my mom. He gets upset. He starts cursing at her. Mm-hmm. He goes, what's wrong with you? Everybody's supposed to get searched. I never saw you get off the bus. He's just saying some, saying some horrible things to my mother. His superior officer sees him he grabs him he shoves him to the side he goes hey what the hell is wrong with you how could you talk to this woman this way he was very upset yeah and he looks over at the suitcase he goes look at this woman's suitcase it's in shambles it's obviously been searched already (laughs) exactly and he looked at my mom's face he goes look at this face this is not a face of a liar wow and he grabs him and he throws him off the bus and he apologizes to my mom and all I could think of is damn my mother is a gangster (laughs) There's this moment when you tell the story in the special and then you pan out and your mother's in the audience and you see her and she's smiling, but it's one of those smiles where you can't quite tell. I'm like, is she loving this or is she like, stop? Does she like you telling that story? Well, I, so she saw me at Radio City Music Hall with Dave Mm -hmm. and I didn't do it there on purpose because I wanted to save it for the special. Mm -hmm. And she was, my mother was extremely emotional. Mm. Uh, throughout the this is the 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 shot we used was from the second show um, and the first show when I came out uh, my mom was just bawling and I almost started when cry- you came I out when you told cry- the story no when it just came out and she Aww. sees 1200 people going crazy Aww. she was like people go crazy for my son I've had this kid mom's are you kidding mom. me this- mom's yeah, gonna exactly. mom exactly I look over and I see I was like ma I can't look at you please <laughs> I, I'm gonna I'm gonna start crying I haven't even said hello yet like, this is killing me oh, I love that. it was one of those like super beautiful yeah. really beautiful yeah. intimate yeah. moments yeah. and she was just like wow my son is really really doing this right now it was one of those situations I is it fair to say that, like, perhaps the biggest theme of your comedic work is breaking down the immigrant, refugee, international experience for people? I think that, I mean, like, that's the sense that I feel. But, like, 
that's kind of the big thrust of your work, huh? I At mean, least right now. I mean, yeah, exactly. Right now, so it's you know, I hope to put out a a, a long body of work, you know, several specials yeah. before I yeah. go on this earth. So I have a goal of like five amazing specials in my head, you know. Okay. So it's just it's just an introduction. All right. right. People people always have all these questions for me. Oh, how did you get here? What did you get? What's your background? Oh, you're not a are you American? You're not. Are you born here? Where you come from? Where your parents are? So the first first special was just like, look, this is who I am. We're in Texas. This is my home court. This is where I'm from. Mm-hmm. This is what I do. Mm-hmm. And that's where that came from. It's like that's what my introductory piece was, is to let people know who I am. And then it'll it'll progress. My work will progress. It's not just going to be framed around that, but it's also, you know, this is what's going on in the world. You did a series of tours for U.S. troops in countries like Kuwait and Iraq while you were still a refugee on this, like, Geneva passport. That must have been trippy. Yeah, I uh, took a lot of risks, didn't I? <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, the and I got judged for this on different sides. You know, it's really frustrating. What do you mean you got judged for it? Uh, I mean, like, you know, so you had, like, Muslims or people who are against war or what have you be like, how could you perform free? troops you know you sell out and then i had the other side where it's just like we don't want no muhammad performing for our troops <laughs> it's just really? like both sides right and then i had the whole thing of uh you know because i did these shows pre nine the first time i did the show was in april of 2001 i was hmm. a little kid when we did germany italy sicily mm-hmm. and then after 9 11 happened i just kept being told how Nobody wants to hear a Muhammad talk. Mm. So I was fearful to even be myself. People were so angry. So I I, uh, I made it a point. I was like, you know what? I am going to go perform for Truman. I'm going to go back and do it for several reasons. Number one, I want to see it with my own eyes. Second thing is that if I can perform in front of them and be myself, mm-hmm. I will have no fear no matter where I go. Mm. And I also want to influence them, you know? Mm. So when I would go do these shows and be myself, you cannot believe the reception. People would roar. The, the, I mean, when we did Japan, Korea, and Guam, man, I would just destroy it. It was just like people would never saw anybody like me mm. come through there in the early 2000s as a Muhammad, like, representing and from Texas. And, you know, a lot of military men from Texas, too. And there was a lot of guys after the show that would come up to me like, oh, I'm half Syrian. Oh, I'm half huh. Lebanese. Huh. Oh, in front of their own, you know. They were, like, coming out as international to yeah, their colleagues. To their own colleagues, exactly. And guys would be like, I didn't know you were half Arab. Yeah, I'm half Arab. What? You know, wow. so I was freeing guys. Yeah. I, I didn't, that was my intention. But I was just, like, my intention was to just influence them and make them laugh and, and give them something to think about. And it was just so fascinating to go through that process that I couldn't get enough. So I did it three years in a row. So the troops liked it. Oh, it's an understatement. They love me. And then oh. when I went to when I, when they asked me to go to Kuwait and Iraq, mm-hmm. which was illegal, by the way, I wasn't supposed to even enter Kuwait, but I did anyway. Okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's over now. So yeah, so it was one of those things. I really put my life on the line for this for these shows, and I wanted to go see it because it was the first time going back to Kuwait after we fled the Gulf War, and I haven't seen my aunt in twenty years. There was all these, all these things that really had to get dealt with, all these emotional wounds that really had to heal properly. And the only way to do it was to go uh, do the shows and stay an extra three days. And, yeah. and it was just a, it was an incredible learning experience. At the same time, grueling, both emotionally and physically. It was really, really grueling. Um, and I did it just, it was so damn important to me. And it worked out. And, uh, and look at you now. Look at me now. Yeah. 
That was comedian Mo Amer. He is on tour around the country for the next several months. And you can see his Netflix special right now on Netflix. All right, that is a wrap for today. Thank you for listening. We're back in your feeds Friday. Till then, talk soon.